Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to the Resistance Recovery Podcast. I am really happy to be interviewing my friend, Hannah Schwartz, who has a lot to tell us about well, a few things, but not least of which something, uh, something called social therapy, which I think, uh, I think we all could stand to learn about. So with that, um, could you just introduce yourself, Hannah, and give them a little thumbnail of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing? Um, yeah, I grew up in an intentional community in Pennsylvania called uh, Kimberton Hills, Camp Hill Village, that it is based around agriculture and inclusion and has a spiritual philosophy that is is really just a view of the human being as that every human being is whole within their biography and um, and that we need to nurture the body, soul, and spirit. There's you know, nourishment for all three of those categories of, of being human and dissolves is focused on dissolving difference and recognizing community and, you know, that we're all needed every perspective from every human being, if we're going to bring wholeness and healing. So that's the environment I grew up in. I, I left that. I went to Warren Wilson College, um, which is an alternative hippie college at the time, also had about 500 students, really small. It's grown a lot since then. Um, I appreciated that experience. It was another a work study program where you worked and lived and studied and there was a tremendous amount of intimacy. And I think the more global experience for me happened in meeting people from all over the world with very different access points, different points of privilege. I started to question, you know, what I had, what I was given. And um, I also went to Waldorf school and that was a, I realized how gift that, the gift of that education, how broad my concepts were and that I experienced a willingness to engage many different thoughts and a, and a deep interest in religion and philosophy because I'd been exposed to many different concepts through that education. Um, and then I, I ended up you know, living kind of a nuclear life. I had my family and I really missed community. I just, there was something about living in a house, in a town where I had to tell my children they couldn't visit anybody because you don't go to strangers' houses and um, a kind of isolation. And that one specific incident really changed my life around a neighbor becoming ill and the, the husband not wanting help because he couldn't pay me. Mm -hmm. And 
just a disturbance that our culture is so built about around this money exchange that really started to strike me that we needed alternative financial structures that allowed us to care for each other. Um, and that opened a whole new realm of questioning our economic structures. Um, I finished my degree at Goddard College. I founded an intentional community up in Vermont, another Camp Hill village. It didn't start as Camp Hill. It's called Heartbeat Life Sharing um, and spent 21 years getting that launched. It's an inclusive community based on, um, yeah, really, I would say there were, there were kind of themes that were, I was addressing within my life. Alternative economics, you know, not working for a paycheck and also separating direct service from money. How do we do that? Because I think that is a huge um, barrier to relationship building and healing. So creating a healing environment for all where our needs are addressed, all our needs are addressed and the community, you know, the community setting, I was able to start to play with those ideas. Um, and then also at Heartbeat, you know, living off the land and the wholeness of health in that our bodies and how we eat and the way we are within the rhythms of the day, the week, the year, the, you know, that we could create some sort of healthy rhythms, healthy diet, and knowing that that also really impacts how we show up in our lives. So Heartbeat was just a playing ground for 21 years, an amazing, amazing opportunity, amazing people. It's still a thriving community. And um, after 20 years, I really knew I needed a change. I felt so submerged that I couldn't find my questions anymore. And um, I, got my, I had gotten a master's degree at Antioch in special education and alternative sensitive systems. And um, I decided to go back and get my MSW at UVM. So a second master's degree, which I'm on the tail end of. And that's brought me into the world of recovery work and um, really like looking into the opiate crisis that seems to be so uh, broadly spoken about and under addressed. <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, yeah. For the audience, though, could you um, just give them a, a picture of what a Camp Hill community is and what the population is, the differently abled people, um, maybe a little bit of history of its relationship to um, Carl Koenig and Rudolf Steiner? Yeah. Um, well, well, you know, out of World War II, uh, Carl Koenig, a Jewish doctor, um, was deeply disturbed by the impact of the Nazi philosophy for people with special needs and fled as a doctor with other nurses and other caregivers with as many children as possible. They ended up in Scotland and founded the first house as refugees. Um, and it was really in the gesture of recognizing this, the gift of our differences. And especially Dr. Koenig, he had this longing and recognition that for humanity's whole evolution forward, we would have to live together 
and that the differences would make the whole. Um, and he also really lived with the philosophy that, you know, we need the different perspectives, that the friends with special needs, the children with special needs, they're sharing a necessary perspective for people that we would call neurotypical, that we have things we need to learn and can't learn without them. So without, you know, when we start to erase people, uh, our earth, there are lessons we won't learn. Really, really timely philosophy given that we're, you know, the, the specter of eugenics is coming back and we're talking about preventing these people from incarnating. Um, and specifically we're, we're talking about the, the differences being mostly on the spectrum or perhaps Down syndrome, are those basically the larger categories or is it much broader than that? It's, it's much broader. So there are 11 communities in the U.S. and about 115 worldwide. And um, Koenig started, planted this seed that's just really expanded. In the U.S., it started, you know, there was the whole uh, deinstitutionalization movement. And Camp Hill uh, was before that. It, it recognized that these institutions were just yeah, there was no dignity left. And, um, you know, Copake opened, Campbell Copake, which is in upstate New York. That was really, it's, that was the inception in the U.S. And um, it's spread, it has spread to being 11 communities now. There are adult communities. There's a chat children's village, you know, uh, Beaver Run Special Schools, Campbell Special Schools now. And um, that place to see Waldorf education and the exposure of concepts to people, which I, again, Camp Hill has this incredible dignity about it in that there aren't, there are no things left on, you know, in terms of limiting people. The assumption is ability. <laughs> they assume ability, not disability. And so there's like, you know, Shakespeare plays and, cultural exposure and and there's just like amazing opportunity that is often limited because we assume disability yeah i mean for those of you listening that have never stepped foot in one of these places i i i really kind of lack the words to describe it but the the health the the, the flourishing the human flourishing that you see and then you realize that these people that have been labeled with these diagnoses, the, your exposure to them prior, how much of what you were experiencing was a function of the stigma and the treatment that followed from the diagnosis. And then to be in these places where these people are the pictures of health and they're, and they're doing like amazing things that I wish I could do, like make cheese and weave and pottery and, and animal husbandry and you know so it's it's just it's very I think it's very hard for especially those of us who have careers laboring in the world of mental health to fully appreciate what it means to treat someone as a human first and not as a diagnosis um, so kudos to you you know my experience too was coming to heartbeat was very much like um the first time I walked into a Waldorf kindergarten <laughs> and I found myself, you know, 
enchanted, but at the same time kind of grieving that part of my life that never had an opportunity to experience this. Um, so it's just, it's really hard to, to verbally do justice to the power of it. I, I agree with you. I often in trying to, you know, I would try to make videos where I could transport, go to New York and bring the community to someone who wasn't going to come. But there is something about visiting the villages and just experiencing the tremendous humanity expansion that we could do. It's like mini practice grounds for what the world really, it can't, we can get there. You know, if we're willing to listen carefully to somebody who doesn't have words, we can understand. Mm -hmm. And if we want to remove the shame and the, um, the shoulds, <laughs> and the pr economic pressures that we've put in place that have these ridiculous bars that are unachievable for most, you know, we, we are caging ourselves in and in Camp Hill, you do experience those barriers coming down and, and it's not easy. Even within that you Camp Hill is struggling, you know, to face, we're in extremely complex times. And, you know, what does it mean? I think we're all needing to really ask, how do we build community? Because the financial structures, you know, we, we have really good, good mental health care. We have the opportunity. We know what it looks like. It's unaffordable. Mm -hmm. That's the barrier. It's not that we lack concepts. I really feel like we have so much of what we need to know, but yeah. our economic structures are barring the accessibility. That's and that's caregivers trying to make enough money to survive. It keeps programs too expensive for people who really need them. And, and I just, there's just, we really need structural, we need to look at the, the financial, we really have to not be afraid to talk about money and structure. That's right. I think that's exactly right. Um, that's the stuff that keeps me asleep at night with in the world of substance abuse. I just want to mention this before we go on. I did an interview just before you with a wonderful man in Vancouver, British Columbia, who lives in the uh, downtown east side, which has the highest concentration of heroin addicts in the world. Mm. And he lives in a house with 13 people, his wife and two children among them, or maybe three. Uh, he lives next door to a functioning brothel. And the other side is a chicken manufacturing place. And across the street is a park that serves as a, a homeless encampment. And, but his life and his children's lives is just so rich because the demographic that he's in constant interaction with of First Nations people, uh, Black people, uh, street people, uh, young kids trying to find their way out of this, the sex uh, sex workers, you know, just all of it you can imagine. And I asked him, I said, but does that demographic cross class boundaries? And he hesitated and he said, well, we do get some. He goes, but they have so much unlearning to do. You know, these are often people from middle and upper class things coming down there. And to illustrate that, he said this, he said, he was talking to a guy that was coming down into his community and he said, why are you here? 
and the guy was from some church or something, and he said, I am here to serve, to serve these people without any thought of return. And Aaron replied with this, my community has nothing to offer you. And I think that is at the very heart of it. If we keep approaching this attitude that we're the, we're the well ones and you need us, and we don't realize that our humanity depends on them, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I love the idea that if you're comfortable right now at all, if you feel comfortable, you're not awake. Beautiful. You know, I, I just, anybody today in this moment in time that says, I feel totally comfortable. I love my life. There's nothing really wrong. You are asleep at the wheel. We have way too much work ahead of us to feel comfortable. We have, we have like, I know that I just feel so uncomfortable, more uncomfortable every day as I, as I wake up to the, um, the inequality and the structures, the oppressive structures that we've put in place as a culture, especially America. And that we, we've got some, so much undoing and also so much doing, we have to imagine together a different model and need think tanks. We need like, we need to come together and think at think tank. Every university should have a think tank of young people who are imagining a different future, different economic structures. You know, I mean, we, we've messed up with our perspective on evolution. We've completely, it's so funny because you have religion who just, you know, has a certain picture of evolution. And then we have Darwinism, which is the survival of the fittest. And instead of the duality of those two, there needs to be an active middle point. <laughs> There's something between the two that really could be created. Even, you know, if Harvard Divinity School would take those two theories and just like bring them closer together <laughs> and yeah. start where the human being belongs you know how is the human being between those you yeah. know are we, we just have so much work and so much creative thinking ahead of us i don't want to be paralyzed into inaction because the weight is so heavy the because the weight of the times are so heavy what are the creative movements forward? You know, how do we start to imagine creative ways forward? And like, I wish that in the community where your friend is living, a whole think tank could be created. I'm not saying just universities. I'm saying all of the people need to be engaged in a think tank process of like, how do we hear all these issues and then different demographics coming together in like fishbowl conversations where we start to create community together. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and one thing, you know, being a long-term member of the recovery world is, um, and I, I fault the recovery world is, they don't advocate for themselves. They defer to the experts. And what that usually means is they give a place, a prominent place at the table to representatives of big pharma. Mm. Um, what's interesting about Aaron White, what he said he does have in this community as a thing called Joshua's no Jacob's well Jake Jacob's well yeah Jacob's well and he said they don't even know what it is 
uh, basically there was this woman who just had some sort of religious conversion and she just would walk that neighborhood and talk to people. And when she got older, she started having dreams about her legacy and she knew it wasn't financial. So she took what resources she had and she created this thing called Jacob's Well. She lived to be 99. Wow. It's, it's basically this place where you can get out of the rain and play chess and watch TV and talk with people and there's food and they just work it out. You know, there's food being made. And he says, the one thing though, is there are certain people that aren't allowed to come in there. If you are representatives of certain organizations that are designed to make money off of this. Mm. Um, so it's really, really quite interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that something like NAMI, which is supposedly this great advocacy thing, receives the bulk of their funding from the pharmaceutical industry. You know, so I'm always telling my clients, qui bono, who benefits from you not getting better? You know, who benefits from you being a lifelong consumer of drugs? And that, that wakes them up. But, but bringing people together, like you're saying, to have these conversations, uh, it's been much harder than I ever dreamed it would be. I often think that maybe we need, when you talk about reimagining something, we have to banish certain things from our vocabulary, like mental health, literally terms like that, because otherwise you're just gonna keep getting co-opted into this thing. And maybe it's time to talk cohabitation. Also, I mean- yeah, I mean, mental health, you know, we use the, it's it's like an easy acronym, mental health. Mm-hmm. Instead of like looking at poverty and trauma and the conglomerate of, of, of and, and again, everybody is so individual and everybody's story is needed if we're going to solve the future. Mm-hmm. And I think it's when we make people feel unneeded, you know, and... Um, and then dependent on the system, you know, we, we, cre- we, in, the model is structured intentionally to create dependency. That's right. And the whole savior syndrome, you know, like, let me save you instead of you save yourself. And here's, and we have a world where you can, we don't have a world where you can. No, no. So, um, you know, I, I feel the, you know, as a, as a current clinician, I feel the tremendous limitations in role in the way we've structured even the clinical role. You know, if someone's moving and they don't have many bags, you've worked really hard to get housing and they don't even have bags to pack their stuff out of the hotel room. And they can't imagine how to get just trash bags you know, technically I'm not supposed to give them all those things, right? But I'm just like, that is a, a bear. Why would we create that barrier? Oh, yeah. Inability to be generous and kind and, um, and follow a certain human intuition. Like the structure that would make a clinician not follow their human intuition seems extremely unethical to me. I have, 
I recently had a client, but he's not the first one who has been homeless for decades. And he really said that the camaraderie and community and affection that he feels living amongst the homeless keeps him there because these systems that he has to access in order to get out of that situation are so inhuman and so Mm. shame inducing that he doesn't want to do it. Another thing I see, and this is even sadder, I see people get out of prison and they are so bewildered by life out here that they will tell you, they're not, you know, they're almost ashamed to tell you that life in prison in many ways was preferable what they're encountering out here. Um, yeah, given, given how, how profoundly destructive that environment is, that tells you a huge amount of information. Wow. Yeah. I mean, just yeah. know what prison life is. Well, and a lot of them get out of here and they're not ready for this world. Yeah. You know, the world of the, the cell phone and the digital device and the lack of eye contact and the... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just incredible. So when you are driving back and forth and you're trying to imagine something based on 21 years in this remarkable place, what kind of ideas go back and forth in your head? I mean, I think your idea about uh, dialogue and, and all the people getting together is a brilliant one, but what other things are you thinking? Um, you know, it's, we, we're afraid of the barrier of sharing resources um, because everybody feels they've worked really hard to get what they have. I hear that language a lot. I've worked so hard to get what I have. Why would I then share it with you? So how are, I think there's a hurdle in, in share, in coming into what we would call the, you know, a more uh, resource sharing structure. What we can't imagine is how much better our lives are when we do start to share resources. If I can buy a house for $300,000 and you can buy a house for $300,000 and we put that together and we buy a $600,000 house that has 300 acres well, that's Vermont pricing. We, um, <laughs> what, what can we do on 300 acres is so much more because we've, we've merged our collection. We, we can share vision and then all of a sudden we can create a village together, but alone we can't, right? So I, I think I keep coming up to how will we have the courage to share resources? And that, that, that works on our trust, right? That means I have to trust. And we have really created because of, of the, the way we structured society and so much lying, you know, going on dishonesty, you know, with ourselves and with, with the world around us, you know, there's these, this linkage between building trust and shared economy. And there's some relationship there that we really, you know, there and and mixed in is the humility to learn how to do both of those things together. Um. So 
you know, one of the things that's always fascinated me about your work and Camp Hill generally is trying to translate that into recovery from addiction, but not being exclusive to that population, but maybe that being sort of a core, core mission. Um, and one of the things that keep me, keeps me awake at night is, you know, right now in America, maybe one in five addicts who need services can access them. And that's all economic. So do you, do you have ideas in that given what you're seeing in your, in your present, uh, internship or job oh yeah I mean I I long especially with the housing because I feel like this idea that you know as long as someone is is homeless it there's such a priority disorder in terms of you know trying to create what's you know whatever we want to call it recovery environment or place of health um I, I see that there's like, you know, there's a trap in the thinking of like, I'm stuck where I am because nothing around me can move. And the structures, the, the cultural and social structures are so tight that person's like caged into the life they've, they're in. And, you know, just recently I was talking to a young woman and I said, well, you know, there's something called AmeriCorps where you could get out of here and go volunteer and get a room and board and stipend. I said, look, you have a high school diploma. You could get an educational award. You could start building houses for people who don't have them. She said, but I don't have a home. I said, but you're shifting the dynamic. You're shifting the dynamic, which is what we have to get to. I said, when you start taking care of people and building homes somewhere, you know, Habitat for Humanity, even if you don't have one yourself, you can empathize with the people you're building their home for. And in the process, something will change and the pattern will shift. And she said, how come nobody has told me that I have these options? So I, I really think, you know, and that was like a breakthrough for me in that moment of like, am I limiting what I talk about because of my fear of addiction? Like, do I not believe this person can do it? And so I have to believe more deeply than ever in people's recovery. I have to not be afraid that it's real. And uh, she really, <laughs> I would say she gifted me this challenge. You know, you know, do you really believe in me? I mean, she asked me, do you believe in me? Right, right. Well, that's it. I, I, I believe in my own case that when I realized that somebody believed in me who had my respect, I realized that everything shifted. That was maybe the most empowering part of my recovery. Mm. I have a friend who I, I'm going to make him listen to this. <laughs> um, his name's Justin. And he, um, he's got a bad, hard story with addiction and multi-generational trauma and uh, prison. And conventional treatment just did not work for him. And that's including even the more edgy, edgy side of AA, the real 12-steppers. But a woman took an interest in him and he's become um, a devoted yogi. Mm. Um, and his thing is he goes down to Mass Ave in Boston. Do you, have you read anything about this? No. 
So it's called the Mass Ave Project. And basically on Massachusetts Avenue in Boston, it used to be called the Methadone Mile. There's a, there's a homeless shelter or two there. And it's an open air, it's some level of Dante's hell. So they literally have an open air cage where people can inject drugs. They won't even, they won't even shelter it in so you can get relief from the elements. It's a cage and people shoot drugs and they, there's feces on the street and there's murder fairly frequent and the cops just kind of leave it alone. And he is joined up with some activists and they go down there and they just do extremely basic, you know, human kindness, food, backpacks, hygiene. Um, and he gets, you know, he's angry and I don't blame him given his background and what he sees. And he gets into conflict with a lot of the recovery community because he's like, where are you guys? Why don't you come down here? But he's dealing with a population of people that, you know, if there was a village, you know, and these people down there, they're not, you know, they're, some of them come from backgrounds that are, you know, a little bit surprising. It's not that they're all multi-generational trauma whose parents and grandparents are drug addicts. Some of these people are just people that got sucked up in an opioid epidemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I hope you, I hope that he really listens to you and that maybe this is a, a connection. There's an amazing woman in Sao Paulo um, in Brazil who I have to get her name. She just decided to open her doors and start working with a very at-risk population and moved into a neighborhood and um, cre ended up just in the collaboration, everybody's sharing resources. What happens is it's much easier when you have less to share I don't really understand what the barrier or why that is. Like we really have to look at the mystery of, of, of why we can't share. You know, when I have more, I, I want to share less. That, that, what is that in the human nature? What is the barrier in the human nature? I know that I, we label it greed, but I think it's more complex than that. And I'd love to be able to remove the judgment so that we can really uncover what the, the mystery of that, um, because it is, it is what keeps the rich rich and the poor poor and the middle lost, you know, the balance out, so out of balance. So why, yeah, what are we, what are we hanging on to? And it's funny, I looked around my house at one point, I mean, heartbeat started, I was extremely, extremely poor. I was young. I was 23. I didn't really have what it took to start that community. <laughs> I, I don't really know. Oh, how you, it did. you did. You did. <laughs> um, but you know, the mystery was that like, I remember just being willing to share everything. And then as the community established itself, some other economic complications started to take root. And the more the community had, the more complicated um, that open door policy became. And Ita Wegman, who really founded Camp Hill, um, she's a dear friend of Rudolf Steiner's, his best friend. Um, at the end of her life, she created a home with an open door policy the last three years of her life in Esconia. And um, anybody was welcome. 
nobody was turned away. That was the policy. And it was not a really, it wasn't really a named community. It was her last social endeavor. And I keep going back. There's a book called, yeah, the end of her life. Um, but it's, she really modeled this idea that the way forward is not going to be identifying populations of need. We're all in, and we all need healing and we need each other. Like I think of my wise friend, Annie Jackson, who just every time she opens her mouth, I'm, I'm moved by what she would have, she has to share with the world. She's a wonderful, wonderful Down syndrome woman. And she just, I, I know that she has wisdoms that's so necessary to the recovery world, <laughs> like what her life experience brings with the people that I'm working with right now. I wish there was more integration. We, we need the different voices. We need to be together and be, yeah, be astonished by our humanity. And be astonished by what we can do together as opposed yeah. to having these heroes that do it for us. Um, so Bruce Alexander, dislocation theory of addiction, his definition of addiction is any overwhelming involvement with a substance or an activity that is harmful to you or your social relations. And what he's pointing out is that that is sort of in America, that is ubiquitous. So if we forget about vodka and heroin and look at shopping and digital devices and food and what have you, and you look around you, you see that there's something in the culture that is, that is it's fertilizer for addiction. And, you know, that's this notion that connection is the opposite of addiction. It comes from Alexander. But what he's saying is that this is, this is ubiquitous and therefore the addict is not really that different. The, the, the particularities are different, but the, 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 the spiritual forces, the social forces causing the addiction are the same for the heroin addict as they are for the woman who can't get away from her cell phone. And that's where I think that's like a way of, yeah, of us coming together in that understanding um, that we're more alike than different. So knowing you, if, if you ever want to, <laughs> if you ever form that, that group of people that want to have this hard conversation and you want um, a really broad demographic, I've got some people that would show up in a heartbeat. Um, I mean, that would be an amazing podcast, you know, just having, getting us all together and, and just the conversation, because I think that's, that's one of the ways forward is just being able to listen to what we can offer each other in perspective well, and the, the kaleidoscope of what that would bring in terms of shifting. Well, then let's do that. I mean, because right now we have, you don't have to build a forum to do it. We can use this one. Resistance recovery is completely in line with these values. There's 1500 people on that already. We can just start this from this. Um, yeah. And then this is our teaser to the audience. So keep an eye out. Yeah, I know. I have like 10 people come to mind. And even just in small, I really love the idea of like 
small groups of people really diverse in the conversation around what we're talking about because i i do feel like we are we're moving towards the collective responding and we've got to have the courage just to do it yeah that's right we don't need to wait for permission and we don't need the um the imprints of uh, or the rubber stamp of some authority figure and we need to embrace the idea that we're going to have false starts and make mistakes all over the place um, Absolutely. yeah so this has been really really wonderful is there any kind of any um anything you want to leave the audience with any like i don't know I mean, I just think we're in a, I really think we're in a, a mysterious time. I mean, we just saw our, you know, capital being, I don't even know what to call it. We saw the faces of discrimination, not in, in, in all directions, in every direction. And if we don't look at ourselves and say, where is that located within me? And how do I do my best to shift it? You know, I, I really think right now there's this opportunity to feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable and to sit in the discomfort and to, to know that my comfort's going to come in connecting, in connecting in real conversation with people who are so different from me exactly. and being pain. And that's why the dialogue the dialogue with the commitment to radical activism, <laughs> you know, like we need radical change. We need radical self-love. We need to take down the cultural barriers that have been constructed through um, hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and I think there's a, there is a global opening right now as as painful as it is in that we all know these nodes of pain we go through them <laughs> so that we change and right. and opportunity right now so i guess i just leave with like be okay with being uncomfortable and don't go back to sleep that's right amen amen well thank you so much long overdue and this ideally this will be the beginning of of something so all right I look forward to brainstorming. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.